Welcome to episode number seven on the My Story podcast. I like to say money's only real value is the good you can do with it. The My Story podcast features interviews with leaders, influencers, and entrepreneurs who tell us their story and the life lessons they've learned along the way. Hi, my name is Conrad Weaver, and I'm your host for the show. I'm a filmmaker, entrepreneur, storyteller, and I really do love sailing, and I can't wait for the next time I get out on the water. But today, I'm so happy that you've stopped by to listen to the show. We are about to hear my interview with Devin Thorpe. Devin is an author, an educator, speaker, and the founder of the Your Mark on the World Center. He's established himself as a champion of social good. He's spoken twice at the United Nations, and he's also a Forbes contributor with 500 bylines and almost 2 million unique readers. He has become a recognized name in the social impact arena. Devin's show, Your Mark on the World, features over a thousand celebrities, CEOs, billionaires, entrepreneurs, and others who are out to change the world. You're going to love this interview with Devin Thorpe, so stay tuned. But first, a word about our sponsors for today's episode. Furnace Hills Coffee Company roasts amazing coffee. They have a great story, too. I'll have to tell you, once you drink a cup of coffee from Furnace Hills, I promise you'll never want coffee from the big name brands again. Why? Their beans are sourced directly from great farmers and it's roasted fresh. You order it today and you'll get coffee beans that have been roasted this week, maybe even the same day that it's shipped to your door. The other cool thing about Furnace Hills Coffee Company that I love is their mission is to employ people with developmental disabilities. Their chief roaster is Erin. She has Down syndrome and even has a coffee blend named after her. And just for the My Story podcast listeners, when you order from FurnaceHillsCoffee.com, use the coupon code MYSTORY, all one word, and get 25% off your order. Check it out. It's special coffee roasted by special people. FurnaceHillsCoffee.com. And now on to today's show and my interview with Devin Thorpe. Devin, welcome to the My Story Podcast. Well, it's an honor to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, tell us a little bit about who you are and what do you do. I call myself a champion of social good. And what I'm all about is uh, solving three little problems. The first is extreme poverty around the world. Hmm. The second is improving global health. And the third is ending or mitigating climate change. So I just tackled three little problems. Wow, those are just little small problems that yeah. you can fix tomorrow, right? <laughs> In a way, I, I will readily admit that most problems are related to one of those three. Mm. Uh, they may not fit squarely in the definition of extreme poverty, but you know, pretty much, uh, you know, social justice issues, uh, mm-hmm. global health, and climate change, and the environment. I mean, that's kind of everything relates to those. So mm-hmm. it, it reflects my personal sense of mission to help people solve the world's problems. And so I, I kind of work to help nonprofits and social entrepreneurs, impact investors, be more effective, more successful. 
uh, in their work. And uh, but I do worry most about those three things. Um, and it's exciting to be a part of success. Uh, we see great positive train trends on uh, extreme poverty and global health. It's so exciting. Just it's incredible to see what's going on and, and so reassuring. Uh, climate change, uh, I'm very optimistic about our ability to get this under control, but really? it's not right now. It, that's it, oftentimes what you don't hear. You don't hear the optimism. Yeah. And there's good reason for that, right? We're, we're, we're still trending in the wrong direction. We, we're still tending to produce or use more fossil fuels every year rather than fewer. And we've got to figure out a way to, to turn that quickly. But, but I actually believe that we will very quickly as an electric car driving human being, I, mm-hmm. I see a quick, quick shift to electric cars over the next decade or two. I see a quick shift uh, toward renewables because now renewables are cheaper than uh, coal-fired power, which has always been the cheapest. Right. Uh, and, and humans are rational. We are going to shift uh, wholesale over the next two decades to renewable energy. And, and so, yeah, I am, I'm really optimistic even about that. Uh, so, yeah, that's what I'm up to. Good. Well, I want to get into that a little bit more, but I want to first back up and kind of tell us a little bit about where'd you come from, where'd you grow up, and how'd you get to where you are today? Well, I was uh, born here in Utah where I live today. It's interesting, the sort of the gravitational pull of home. I left Utah... Many times, actually. I left when I was 15. My dad uh, took a position in uh, Spokane, Washington, loved Spokane. What a great town. I love Spokane. Yeah, I love love that city. Boy, just a spectacular place. I I miss Spokane. Um, I I left Spokane and went almost directly to Argentina for a couple of years on a mission to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That was Mm -hmm. a great, great experience. And my first experience living in what we often call the developing world. And so that was, you know, a formative experience. Came back to Utah, got uh, finished a degree there uh, at the University of Utah, and uh, then went to work on Capitol Hill in Washington, Mm. D.C. for a couple of years, and then got an MBA at Cornell in upstate New York. And when I left to go to D.C., I really thought I would never live in Utah again, that it would Mm. be a place I visited but not lived. but uh, I really did not do a good job of career planning when I was at <laughs> Cornell. And so I was one of the few students that didn't have a good job when we graduated. And I ended up coming back to Utah because my wife got a job out here. So I've spent my, most of my career here in Utah since then. I, I spent 25 years doing finance stuff. Mm-hmm. I was a corporate treasurer, a corporate CFO, ran a little mortgage company. I ran my own investment banking firm for seven years. Uh, that was a great experience. Did a lot of fun things, but uh, about eight years ago, uh, I got fired from the best job I'd ever had as the CFO mm-hmm. of a global food and beverage company. And it gave me an opportunity to reflect on what I really wanted to do and, uh, and frankly, a little bit of uh, severance money. And so I, I launched this new career, starting by spending a year in China. Went oh, to wow. China with my wife. We we went on a program for Brigham Young University, uh, kind of as a, it's not an exchange program, but they place mostly U.S. English-speaking 
professors at, at universities in, in Ch- around China. Okay. We ended up in Guangzhou, great experience. But while I was there, I wrote a book called uh, Your Mark on the World about using money for good. Mm-hmm. And I uh, kind of stepped off the cliff from a corporate and finance career into what has become, you know, journalism, author, speaker, educator. And I just love it. You know, I get up wow. every day and just think, uh, you know, I want to pinch myself yeah, because so I, I so enjoy what I do. So something that for the average person would be devastating, you know, losing your job has turned into something amazing. Oh yeah. So yeah. what was that process like? I mean, to hit, get the, get the news, get the pink slip and yeah. Hey, come home and tell your wife, I don't have a job anymore. <laughs> you know, what's next? Yeah. Well, I, I can't ignore the fact that it was sort of traumatic. Uh, it, it certainly is a, a shot to the ego, but mm. very quickly, um, I remember the feeling quite literally as I walked out of the office you know, we kind of agreed that my my time was up uh, at midday, mm-hmm. and that I really wasn't needed. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they didn't want me to stick around was for that a transition. That wasn't part of the plan. It was I was just done. Mm-hmm. So I grabbed a box, packed up, you know, my personal things from the office, and you know, walked out uh, in the middle of the day. You know, it was like wow. noon or one or something. On uh, probably stopped for lunch on the way home. But I remember thinking that all the things I had been worried about that morning were related to my job Hmm. and none of them were (laughs) my problem anymore. None. So was that a relief? It really was. So I I was able to to focus even then on the fact that although I loved my job and enjoyed being responsible for all of those things, I was able to focus on, oh, that's not my problem anymore, and to move on. Um, and I remember people were very kind to me, you know, even, even the bosses. They were great mm-hmm. to me. Everybody was great. It was in so many ways. And, and so I realized a lot of other people have very different experiences uh, sure. in that kind of thing. But right. they were generous financially, and they were kind personally. And so it was an easy transition that – this the, the BYU China program was they were sort of late in the cycle, uh, hmm. and they really weren't excited that we were applying to participate in mid March when the deadline for applications was technically in January, I think. Oh wow! Um, but we had friends in the program who kind of wouldn't take no, and so they <laughs> they did an end run and got their university excited about having us. And mm-hmm. so the university sort of insisted that BYU send us. And uh, what a great year we had. We just yeah. So how long it. was it from the time you were, you walked out at noon to the time you went to China? How long was that? It was probably 120 days. But until we made until we had to be 100 percent confirmed, it was like t- 10 or 12 days. Oh, wow. So we went from submitting an application and not knowing, you know, how this would fit into other plans. And, you know, I kind of was interviewed for a couple of CFO positions over that 10 days to suddenly, wow, we're going to China. And so, yeah, it happened very quickly. We had a little gap there of 
time to get ready to actually go. But the the decision was cast very quickly. Mm-hmm. So did that experience, I'm not, I'm not sure how old you were at that time, but did, did, it, did, it, did it change your worldview? Oh my gosh. Uh, yes. Yes. You know, they, they say there's nothing like travel to change your perspective, but the, there, there is one thing that's even better than travel, and that's living abroad. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, a, there's a saying about uh, China that uh, people who go for a week write a book, people who stay for a month write an article, and the people who live there for a year uh, are so confused they can't <laughs> write anything about it. <laughs> and it's, it, it really is. I mean, this is a 6,000-year-old culture. And of course, if, if you don't speak Chinese, uh, Mandarin or, or any of the other dialects, uh, it, it sort of happens in front of you, but you're really not part of it. And, and I tried desperately to learn Mandarin, but it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> That's a difficult language, I understand. It is. And it's it's harder to learn language after we turn 40. And sure. uh, so it, it was it was it was a challenge. But oh, we so grateful for that experience. Um, hmm. yeah. So how was it leaving? I'm assuming, a you know, a good salary to maybe not having as much coming in on a month-to-month basis anymore. Yeah, the, the, the transition was remarkably slow. Um, there was a period of severance. I had a very modest income from the Chinese university. They gave us a, a small stipend, small by the standards I was accustomed to. Uh, sure generous by Chinese standards, I guess. Mm-hmm. And we came home and, and uh, started, you know, earning our way uh, this way. And it has been interesting. It has been interesting. Mm-hmm. Even eight years later, I certainly haven't been able to reestablish the level of profitability and income that uh, we had when we were both working at, at, in great U.S. jobs. And so it's it'll be a challenge for us to. to so get back how is your things. how is your happiness quotient then? I mean, a lot of people, you know, say yeah. if I make a big fat paycheck, I'm it'll, it'll make me happy. Yeah. So there is no question that money does solve problems, right? And so sure. we do have worries now that we didn't have when I was making a lot of money. But every day I get to spend more time by far with my wife, whom I love more than anything, than, than I did before. We are really effective partners in this. I love the work that I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of what I do involves me talking to people mm-hmm. a lot of times one-on-one. You know, I've, I've got a, a, a podcast of my own. Um, I've done over a thousand episodes. Wow. And so I have met over a thousand incredible people. You know, there, there are a few that have been on the show that quite frankly don't impress me, <laughs> but, but over a thousand of them did. <laughs> I mean, they're just, it's just amazing. And, and I've be, begun to learn and to watch, you know, I, I'll run into people who say, oh, Devin, I so admire your work because I do thus and so uh, in the world. And what they do is, oh yeah, I, I build a school in Africa and I go there three times a year. And so I so admire and appreciate your work. And I'm like, 
I don't, you know, I didn't build a school in Africa. I don't go there three <laughs> times a year. But I run across ordinary people who who celebrate what I do, who are doing so much more than I'm doing all the time. And it mm-hmm. really humbles me. It really inspires me. Um, and of course, the people on my show are the people that I can identify one way or another as, as doing something. Mm-hmm that I think is more interesting and more impactful than what I do. Uh, and so I just have a constant stream of positive examples and it's what a joy, what an incredible joy. Wow. So in some of your writings and books, you talk about how adding purpose to your business adds profit to the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. Speak to that a little bit. Well, it, it is becoming truer now than ever. Although I, tend to believe it probably always was true and was undiscovered. It was an undiscovered, unrecognized truth. But now what we see clearly is that people can express their desire to have more purpose in their lives. Mm -hmm. And so that means that whether we're talking about their role as a consumer or as an employee or even as an employer, they are happier when you can layer in some impactful activity into the work that they're doing. And we see this at small and large companies. And, you know, one of the ironies is is I think people in small companies think, well, only large companies can do this. And the real truth is it's, it's easier for small companies to give more as a percentage of revenue, for instance, as a general rule than for large companies. Mm-hmm. When, when Microsoft, which has revenue over $100 billion a year, thinks about giving, let's just say, 1% of revenue, that's a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And shareholders have a tendency to want to claim that. Right. So Microsoft, which I actually admire for the, the philanthropy they do, their association remaining association with Bill Gates, I'm sure inspires part of this, but they give away about $100 million in cash. So about 0.1% in cash. And then they also give away about 1% of their revenue in product that they give to nonprofits. So they're giving away about a billion dollars a year of profits and or, or of products. And I think that is easier for the shareholders to stomach the 0.1% of cash that goes down. Okay. And then the 1% of products goes down pretty well. And so Microsoft is having a huge impact because much of that product does one of two things. It's either product that somebody would have paid for. And so now thank heavens are not having to use scarce nonprofit resources to pay for it. uh, Or they are, they're getting something that they couldn't afford otherwise and are doing something productive and valuable with it. So it really is great. Um, but even the tiniest companies have an opportunity to do this. Like uh, I'm going to give you a, a happy story with a sad ending hmm. as an example, if I may. May I? Sure. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so the woman who used to cut my hair, ran a small you know, I, I just saw this story. I saw you saw your yeah. speech to the United Nations and yeah. I was hoping you were going to share this story. So yeah. this is a great story. So she uh, started doing, uh, well, she was 
at a community council meeting uh, here in Salt Lake, and she was anxious about the problem of the homeless population in downtown Salt Lake. And it, it downtown Salt Lake is no different than any other urban city in the country. We've got a real homeless problem and it tending to get mm-hmm. worse. But she asked the the uh, police chief, you know, what he was going to do about it. And, and he kind of turned it around and he said, if every, you know, business downtown did something to help the homeless, we wouldn't have a homeless problem. Mm-hmm. And she really took that to heart. So she, she started going down to the homeless shelter doing makeovers for the women there. Wow. And what's interesting is when she started doing that, her business really started to grow. She developed a real reputation downtown hmm. for being this super gracious, super generous, thoughtful woman. And her business was just thriving. And when I would give speeches in, in Salt Lake, people would come up to me after I talked about it and they go, oh, I just love Teresa. She is so amazing. She does such great work. Well, after a time... She and her staff got frustrated with the difficulties and stopped mm-hmm. doing it. Now, I, I should say that not only was she getting all kinds of praise, but she nearly doubled the size of her business. She, she wow. expanded her lease, doubled the size of the space, hired more people. I mean, she was just cooking with gas. Hmm. Well, then she stopped doing it. Here's the sad thing. She stopped doing it. And of course that reputation faded, right? People, sure. and uh, she has subleased some of the space out. Uh, she's laid off a bunch of staff. Her world completely has changed. Wow. And what were the frustrations she was experiencing that would, that caused her to back off? Well, I think there were a couple of things, but she felt like the, sometimes the women she was helping at the shelter didn't appreciate it uh, enough. There were some confrontations and safety issues that they worried about. And I I don't mean to trivialize her -hmm. issues and her concerns. So her first reaction was to bring some of the women from the shelter into the, into her salon. But Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of them showed up high and Mm -hmm. made a scene around other customers. And she didn't feel like she could continue to take that risk. And and so she Mm -hmm. just discontinued it altogether. So it was a shame to see, but you could see, I mean, I, I can map her her revenue almost perfectly with the amount of community service she was doing. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so I really believe that, you know, customers and employees engage with that at a level that's hard for us to fully measure and appreciate. But in, in, in your talk that I was watching, you, you mentioned that a business needs or, or, you know, a company needs to choose a cause authentically. What did you mean by that? Well, I, I think it is important. And, and, you know, my hairdresser was a great example of this, right? She, she could see this problem right out her window, right? Homeless people, mm-hmm. you know, walking by her store all the time. So it was really an authentic choice. But a, a, another example of choosing authentically was, uh, a marketing company they, that made, I think, you know, kind of these tchotchkes like label pens and that sort of thing, took all of their employees to Hawaii. And uh, one of the employees, uh, Susan, invited her on again, off again boyfriend to, 
to go with her. And I guess she was hoping it would solidify their relationship <laughs> and maybe take it to the next level. But one night during the retreat, all of her colleagues heard her screaming in her hotel room. And because her boyfriend had barricaded the door, they weren't able to get in in time. Mm -hmm. And he's now serving a life sentence for her murder. Oh, wow. So they chose domestic violence to be their mm -hmm. cause, right? So they, they, they make donations and do work to help prevent domestic violence in, mm -hmm. in Susan's honor. Now, not every company is going to have such an obvious connection like Teresa with the homelessness or uh, the marketing company with Susan's experience in Hawaii. And so you, you, you may need to ask, but I, mm -hmm. my sense is that if you start asking employees uh, in focus groups and surveys, ask your customers, I think you're going to find that there are things that that you share as a common interest uh, that may or may not be directly related to your business, but around which you can give significant work and money. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think, I think every business can, and, and to the extent they do a good job of choosing authentically, uh, mm -hmm. they can be much more effective in mm -hmm. raising money and doing good and engaging the customers and the employees and getting the benefits that a corporation or small business wants from mm -hmm. the corporate social responsibility efforts they make. You know, I think we've all grown up in a world that, you know, tells us to be successful. We have to go to college, get a degree, land a job with benefits, work your way up to management or the C-suite and retire with a million bucks in the bank. You know, what is wrong or right about that kind of philosophy of life? Well, I I only think the problem is that it doesn't correlate very well with happiness hmm. and finding purpose does. Now, not every, you don't have to be, you know, worried about starving orphans in Yemen hmm. to be a good person. Uh, that doesn't have to be your cause just because I worry about it. But the more purpose-driven you become, there's great evidence that uh, the more purpose-driven you are, the happier you are. Hmm. And uh, I like to say money's only real value is the good you can do with it. And so as we begin to shift our mindset from how much money can I accumulate to how much good can I do, I think our whole worldview shifts and our happiness increases. I have to tell you, in my experience, that that is absolutely correct. I've, for the past three, four years, I've been doing some work uh, with some some organizations in Ukraine working with orphans. Yeah, and I'm telling you, I've I've been over there four times in the past two and a half years, and it is, it, it's the most amazing experience to be there to hang out with these young kids who have nothing. And just to spend time with them and to to help those who are in country there who are working directly with these kids. It's so I come back from that just like I just want to stay there and just soak it in. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, and and then I get to share that with people and they're like, wow, you know, you're doing amazing things. Well, I'm just over there helping out. I'm not on the ground doing this every day. 
but I get to be a part of it. And that's what's so much fun. And yeah. Yeah. And if I could do that, you know, one, one, with, with a hundred percent of my time, I would certainly, that's what I'd be doing. What's the biggest life lesson you've learned along the way about, you know, you know, working in the financial industry and doing what you do now? It's funny. Uh, I ask people this question all the time and I love all the answers that I get but I have never thought about it myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, when I personalize that question, what is the most powerful lesson? Um, I, I'm still learning. I guess that's part of why, why this, I, I, I don't feel like I have the, the ready answer, but, but one of the things that uh, more and more seems to be the, the cue and the clue that would suggest that, I think it's I think it's collaboration, right? And mm-hmm. I think it takes more serious collaboration. It's it's uh, the more I collaborate, the better my world gets in so many ways. And I think the better the world gets, the more people collaborate. I'm not a natural collaborator, uh, and so this mm-hmm. is hard for me. Mm-hmm. I'm a very independent person, and mm-hmm. but. As I've watched the fight against polio, uh, so this is a global effort, I've seen most people are unaware of this, but the the fight against polio is one of the largest public health initiatives in history and is probably the largest, most well-coordinated global health initiative on the planet right now. Hmm. It's interesting because that's not something that's on – most of our radar. Yeah. I mean, it's because it's something that was back in the, you know, 50s and 60s when it yeah. was impacting yeah. the, people here. The vaccine uh, became available in the early 50s. And so there has not been an epidemic of, of polio in the United States since the 50s. Mm-hmm. And there has not been a case, I think, since the 60s. It's really wow. been a long time since anyone in the United States got polio. But, you know, Europe, Eastern or Western Europe eradicated it uh, about the same time the United States did. But last year in Afghanistan and Pakistan, there were a total of 32 cases. Hmm. Now, that's not a lot. But Hmm. until the disease is completely eradicated, we have to immunize every child on the planet. Every Is that hereditary or how does that get transmitted? It it gets transmitted person to person through fecal matter. So through the okay. sewage, hmm. uh, nasty, nasty way to mm-hmm. think about it. But, you know, in places where you have open sewers sure. and poor water quality, which you get in rural and urban poor communities in mm-hmm. Pakistan and Afghanistan, you, you get polio. And with the conflict in Afghanistan right now, we just are having a really difficult time getting on top of that. And the Afghanistan-Pakistan border is very porous, mm-hmm. so you get people coming in all the time. Uh, and so, even in con- you know cities far away from uh, Afghanistan, in Pakistan, you're getting cases of polio, some of which can be tracked back to Afghanistan. It's just, it's mm-hmm. it's it's horrible. It's it's tragic, and uh, tremendous amounts of money and effort are going 
into those countries to fight this battle. But we have taken the number of cases over the last 30 years as this deliberate global collaboration has been underway from 350,000 a year to 32. Literally, we're talking about a 99.99% reduction in the number of cases. But we have to get to zero. Now, that's one great example of global scale collaboration. And I am more convinced than ever that all of us who are working on it to solve any problem, including just improving our businesses, need to be thinking about how to improve our collaborations with others um, mm-hmm. at a personal level. So, for instance, I started working almost two years ago on an online school for change makers. And I was producing all of the content myself. And then about, really, it was just 60 days ago, it hit me. You know, I'm I'm a slow learner, I guess. (laughs) But it hit me that the real secret was to get other experts to provide their content. And so already this year, we've added nine new courses with other experts Mm -hmm. and Uh, So we're seeing now sales, of course, increasing and much more engagement. People are using the platform more. And it was really just a great example of how that collaboration is is the big deal. Yeah, that's something that I'm working on. I just completed uh, my third feature documentary. It's called Heroin's Grip. It's a story about the opioid crisis. And one of my goals and dreams for the film was to bring communities together to solve this issue. And for example, last night we did a screening down in Richmond, Virginia, and it was, it was amazing. We had, so after the film, we had a little panel, the local sheriff was there, a local district attorney was there, somebody from the health department was there. And then somebody from a, uh, a nonprofit, uh, uh, like a sober home, sober living, uh, community was there. And it was the first time all these different groups had gotten together to discuss this in that issue, in, uh, in that region. And so it was so encouraging to me to be able to have a small part in bringing these groups together to talk. And I think that collaboration is how to solve problems. I think you're, you're right. You're absolutely right about that. We have to work together because your experience and your background is different than mine and my background. And the two of us can, if we work together, we can more efficiently solve the problem that we're facing. Yeah, yeah. There is just power and synergy in collaboration. And I think all of us can think of collaborations, partnerships, et cetera, that have failed. Uh, but mm. it's hard to think of huge successes that were really single-handed. So what are some of the books, leaders, people, or even podcasts that have most influenced you? Oh, golly. Uh, I'm, I'm a voracious reader. Actually, I tend to listen to books. I love a good road trip just so I can get more reading done. <laughs> I think one of the most impactful books um, that I've read is a book called uh, Drawdown. By, uh, it was edited by Paul Hawken, and uh, I had the opportunity to interview him for my show just yesterday. And that's part of the reason it's top of mind. But but mm-hmm. a lot of people have written about climate change and the environment. But many of those writings focus on the nature of the problem and general 
solutions, if they get to solutions at all. Mm -hmm. Drawdown is simply a list of 100 solutions for climate change. And so when you read through this book, you are left with the impression that we've got this because 80, 80 of the 100 are proven existing scaling solutions that we are already implementing. They, mm-hmm. they need to be scaled further, all of them, but they mm-hmm. all work. And then we similarly, he adds 20 that where there is great scientific evidence and the technologies are not yet scaling. They're not yet being implemented, but 20 more that can be. And of course, one of the things that I've observed, like in the fight against polio, is we don't have to be limited in a 30-year project like mitigating climate change. We don't have to be limited to today's technologies. There will be new technologies tomorrow and next year and next decade that will help accelerate our work. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't start today. It doesn't mean we shouldn't use the technologies we have now. It just means that when it comes time to cross the finish line, progress may be faster than it is today. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't start. Hmm. And sometimes if we don't start now, we're we're behind in the future. I mean, for example, I'm, we built a house here back in 2005 and there was no trees on the lot. And at the time I didn't, we didn't have quite enough, you know, money to plant some trees. And, and now, you know, I'm like, man, we should have planted trees when we first built this house, you know? And because the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. Right. Yeah. And, uh, so, um, the next time is today. It's today. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know if you're familiar. I think the last time we connected, it was mostly via email, but I was working on my film, Thirsty Land. And I don't know if you had a chance to see it, uh, but it's available on Amazon. Uh-huh. You, know, you might be oh, interested. I'll watch it. I will we, we'll watch it right we, uh, away. Did a discussion about the, the water in the West and the, the, the challenges facing cities and agriculture and all of that. So it was a, it was a very interesting project, uh, very much related to what you're talking about you know, with climate change. Yeah. Where can people get in touch with you? Where can they learn more about what you do? And, uh, and where, and what is your podcast that you have? Yeah. So golly, uh, people can probably find me most easily at devonthorpe.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Devin D Thorpe and it's Devin with an I Thorpe with an E D in the middle. And my podcast is called, uh, the, the Social Impact Podcast, The Your Mark on the World Show. Kind of has two names, but I finally figured out that uh, I, I, it wasn't very searchable as Your Mark on the World because no one searches for that unless they know me, mm-hmm. but uh, people mm-hmm. search for the Social Impact Podcast. So anyway, that's kind of the, the name is Social okay. Impact Podcast, Your Mark on the World Show. Awesome. So what when you are wrapping up your life, what do you want your mark on the world to be? Oh, I I hope when I'm done, we can look back as a human family and see the great progress we have made over the 30 years, really, that I will have worked on this. Uh, You know, as I look back from my 80th birthday and look back 
to my 50th birthday back in uh, 2015, I hope we will see tremendous progress. I hope we will have completely eliminated extreme poverty. I hope we will see the wide eradication of most infectious disease. I really think we can do that in, in over that time period. You know, malaria, tuberculosis, AIDS, you know, the rare tropical diseases. I think we can get on top of all that. I think we can make cancer curable. And, you know, if we are smart, we can largely prevent it, I think, with with a lot of things changing in our environment hmm. in terms and what we choose to eat. And then, of course, climate change. I, I'm really optimistic that our grandchildren will not worry about climate change, that it will be something that they will, you know, drive electric cars. Well, they will, they will, they won't drive. They will sit in electric flying cars, right? That's what will happen 30 years from and now. the computers will take them to where they are yeah, going, right? Yeah, their cars will, will take them. I mean, they will live in an sure. incredible world. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it really will be shocking, 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 shocking. But uh, I, I mean, you think about what, you know, 100 years ago, people that lived back then couldn't imagine what we're doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the pace of change, the rate of change is accelerating. Sure. And so I really think that we will see change comparable to the last hundred years over the next 25 to 30. And so we will see just extraordinary things. Uh, we, you know, we will have gone to Mars. Uh, we may have a, a community of people living on Mars. I mean, what a, I just, it, it will be an extraordinary time to be alive. That's just what I was going to say. What an amazing time to be alive. Yeah. You know, in all of the history of the planet, this is some of the most exciting times and also some of the most uh, frightening times in a way. Oh, yeah. This with uh, the world situation and all that. So, yeah. well, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, just say thank you so much for joining me on the My Story podcast today. I really appreciate uh, your time and... Uh, Appreciate what you're doing and what you're doing to change the world. And well, thank you, Conrad. More of us need to be. Can't wait to have you on my show. It'll be great. We got to talk about some of your films. I'd love to, especially your latest, the the heroin film. We got to talk about that. Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Devin, for spending time with me on today's program. We really enjoyed it. And if you, the listener, would like to learn more about Devin and his work around the world. Check out the show notes below. I have links to his website and all his social sites as well. Thanks so much for listening to the show today. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, make sure you hit the subscribe button and please share it with your friends and family. And I'm always eager to hear your feedback. Those five-star reviews are always welcome. I'll even take a four-star. Just give me a review. Give me stars. It really helps to get this podcast out to more listeners when you leave a review, leave a click on a star, something like that. It really helps. Thanks so much. Hey, next week on the My Story podcast, we are going to have the pleasure of having Patricia Mulroy on the program. Pat is an amazing woman. She is a leader in the international water community for more than 25 years. She's been one of the leading experts in water in the West. She serves as a senior fellow for climate adaptation and environmental policy 
and also a, as a practitioner in residence for the Saltman Center for Conflict Resolution at the UNLV William S. Boyd School of Law in Las Vegas. She also holds a faculty position at the Desert Research Institute and serves on the board of directors for the Wynn Resorts in Las Vegas. Pat is an amazing force of knowledge and information and is an expert negotiator. And that's what we're going to talk about next week on the podcast. Pat was uh, very much involved in negotiating uh, lots of water issues in Las Vegas and in Southern Nevada. And uh, she uh, is has an amazing ability to bring two opposing sides together and come to a resolution when there is conflict. And we're going to find out more about that in my interview with Patricia Mulroy next week on the My Story Podcast. The My Story Podcast is produced by Conjo Studios, an award-winning video production company whose focus is helping you tell your story. Visit conjostudios.com, click on the blue Get a Quote button, and let them know what you need. Then watch your stress melt away as their team does the magic of producing your next video or film project. That's conjostudios.com, telling stories that matter. Last, if you have an idea for an interview you'd like to hear, send me a message and I'll see what I can do. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you again next week on the My Story Podcast.